Clearly, culturally, a lot of people were fasting at this time, but it was not one of God's laws. Jesus and his disciples aren't breaking God's law. They're breaking our rules. They're breaking human rules. But did you notice Jesus doesn't actually bother to answer their question in terms of the law? He could have just said, the law doesn't command us to fast today, so they're not fasting today. But actually, Jesus wants to deal with something else entirely. He wants to deal with who he is. If Jesus wasn't really God's son and God's king, we'd read through the Gospels and think, this guy is really self-centered. But because he is, it's okay for him to bring everything back to him because everything does come back to Jesus. What do you think of Jesus? Who do you think Jesus is? That's the heart of the questions that we've all got to answer. And you see, Jesus isn't even saying fasting is wrong. Actually, I think that Jesus commands Christians to fast. When he's asked a question, he says, when you fast, don't be like the hypocrites who just do it to impress other people. Actually, I think Christians, we should fast, and sadly, I think it's a spiritual discipline that we're rubbish at, but that's for another time. Now, Jesus is interested in talking about himself here. Listen again to what he says. They're asking this question about fasting, and how does he answer? Can the wedding guests fast when the bridegroom is with them? Of course, the answer is no, isn't it? It would be mad to turn up to a wedding and the big kind of feast and celebratory meal and be like, actually, I'm not going to eat. I'm just going to dress all in black and maybe put some ash on my face and just sit here wailing every so often. You'd, you'd ruin the celebration, wouldn't you? It would be mad to fast at a wedding. Even more so in those days when, when actually a wedding was like a whole town, a whole village affair and would go on for seven days. Puts our wedding celebrations to shame. It would be madness to fast during that. You don't fast while the bridegroom is here. But who is, who is the groom in Jesus' example? Well, it's him, isn't he? He's saying, this is all about me. I am the bridegroom, so it would be madness to fast while I'm here. Jesus makes everything about him. He's not interested in God's law in one sense and the ins and outs of that. He's interested in them engaging with who is he. And he's not even just saying that he's the really important one. He's going beyond that because, well, maybe you know already, but throughout the Bible, Old and New Testament, God describes his relationship with his people as like a bride and a groom. That God is the groom and his people, the Old Testament Israelites and the New Testament Christians, are his bride. Jesus here, in the second chapter of Mark's Gospel, is claiming to be God, come to his people. He is the groom, come for his bride. So you don't fast while the groom is here. You see, Jesus is breaking all of our rules because he is the one with real authority. He is the God who is the giver of these rules. He hasn't just come to fit in with how things already are, He's come to bring something new and better, not to just tie in with their traditions. That's why he carries on with those two little examples, doesn't he? Look at, again at verse 21. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it. The new from the old and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. 
If he does, the wine will burst in the skins and the wine is destroyed and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. You see, Jesus is saying he has not come to just fit in with the existing religious way of life. He's not just another teacher like the Pharisees or, or even another prophet. He has come to being something brand new because the truth of the whole of the Old Testament is that old way of doing things does not work. Uh, in fact, actually, in, in many ways, that's the point of the Old Testament, to show that the human effort and human desire is never going to be enough. We need a supernatural intervention from God. Jesus is bringing something brand new. He cannot just fit in with the old religious way of doing things. He is the bridegroom who has come for his bride. And he has come bringing feasting over fasting. But also he brings blessings over burdens as well, doesn't he? Look on at verse 23. Uh, One Sabbath he was going through the cornfields and they made their way. His disciples began to pluck ears of corn. And the Pharisees were saying to him, look, Why are they doing what's not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry? He and those who were with him, how they entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the priest, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, the Sabbath wasn't made for man, Well, the Sabbath was made for man, sorry. It's a key change. Uh, Not man for the Sabbath. So, the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Well, again, you see the situation, don't you? It's a Sabbath back then. That was a, a Saturday. And Jesus is letting his disciples work by harvesting food. And so the question is raised. This time it's by the Pharisees. And again, it is a fair question. Why are you letting your followers break the Sabbath law? Jesus isn't the one who's picking the corn himself, but he's allowing his followers to do it, so he is the one who's responsible. And the Sabbath was a law, one of the Ten Commandments. Maybe you know it from Exodus chapter 20. Listen to this. It's a long section in that commandments, actually. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. Neither you, nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. You don't get more serious law-breaking than the Ten Commandments, do you? You don't get anything more cut and dried. It's a Sabbath, your people are working guilty. But again, Jesus is breaking our laws, not God's. You see, we do need to give credit to the Pharisees and the ancient Israelites. Uh, Maybe if you've been familiar with the Bible story many times, you already kind of caricature the Pharisees as the pantomime villains. Because, as even in our passage shows, they do begin to plot against Jesus. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. These guys took God's law seriously. They wanted not to break the law. They wanted to be careful not to break God's commandments. And so, when God says keep the Sabbath day holy and do no work on it, 
they spent many years discussing together and considering, well, what does that mean? And so there are all kinds of examples as the Pharisees and the religious rulers of the time try to work out what was work and what wasn't. Uh, let me give you an example. If there was an earthquake and someone's house fell down on the Sabbath, it was allowed to dig away at the rubble until you could find the bodies. At that point, you would have to make some checks. Are they alive or are they dead? Are they alive and are in imminent danger of dying or are they okay? Because if someone was alive and in imminent danger of dying, it was okay to carry on digging so you could get them out and look after them. If they were alive, but it looked like they'd probably be okay to the next day, you had to stop because that would be working on the Sabbath and then finish the work when it wasn't the Sabbath anymore. If they were already dead, you'd stop and leave them and clear the bodies the next day. You also were encouraged, actually, if you walk more than 1,999 steps, that's working. Less than that, you're okay. More than that, and this is in the days before, you know, pedometers on your watch, that they had to very carefully keep track of how far they had gone so that they wouldn't walk too far for it to count as work on the Sabbath. And, of course, you shouldn't go harvesting in your fields, and so on, and so on. They try to see, okay, God says keep the Sabbath holy, do no work. Well, what does that look like in practice? But, of course, you see what's happened with Jesus and his disciples? The law, keep the Sabbath day holy, that's God's law. They haven't broken that. They've broken the Pharisees and the religious leaders' interpretation of what it looks like to work on the Sabbath. In fact, if we take a step back and we see the Sabbath was meant to be a reminder of dependence on God. The Lord made everything. He rules everything. He is sovereign over everything. And even he rested as a pattern for people to follow that we should rest and depend on the Lord who provides. And here, surely Jesus and his followers, well, they're depending on the Lord who provides, aren't they? how he providentially has provided food just as they happen to be walking around. The Pharisees and many of the religious leaders of the day got too preoccupied with their interpretation of God's law that they missed the point. Jesus wasn't breaking God's law. Jesus breaks our laws because he is the one who has authority. I wonder if you noticed, again, he doesn't actually get into a discussion about the ins and outs of Sabbath law-keeping. His, his answer actually has nothing to do with the Sabbath. He basically says, I'm not interested in that. Let me talk about myself. And he said to them, 25, have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry, how he and those who were with him, how they entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. Maybe you remember that situation. 1 Samuel chapter 21. David has been anointed as the king of God's people, but Saul is still on the throne. And Saul hates David and spends so much of his time just trying desperately to kill him that David is basically living in hiding. Desperate, going from cave to cave, keeping out of the way of Saul and his soldiers. And so one time, as him and his followers are desperate for food, they come across Ahimelech, the priest, and they ask, 
have you got any food for us? And Elimelech says, well, no, I haven't. The only thing I've got is some of this bread from the temple that's reserved for the priests. And David, God's anointed king, is able to take that bread and eat it and give it to his men. Not because he doesn't care about God's law, but because he sees the true point of God's law about dependence and trust in him. And because he is God's king, he is the one who has the authority to interpret it rightly. That's what Jesus is doing here. Jesus is basically saying, look, David had the authority to make that decision. I am God's king like David. I've got the authority to make that decision too. Jesus is God's Christ, God's king. A king like David, but actually a king greater than David because he's also God's son. Jesus can make that judgment of what it looks like and what it means to keep the Sabbath day holy. It's not down to the Pharisees. It's not down to any of us to make those decisions. It is down to Jesus. He is the one uniquely with authority. Because, as he calls himself, the Son of Man is Lord even over the Sabbath. The great Son of Man, as prophesied back in Daniel, of the one who God himself gives absolute authority to, he is the one who can decide what keeping the Sabbath day holy is. Not the Pharisees, not you or me or us. Jesus brings feasting over fasting, blessing over burdens, but also he brings life over laws. See, as we move on to chapter 3, listen again. Here, again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. They watched Jesus to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to him, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save a life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. And he said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and was restored. The Pharisees went out immediately and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. With every situation we see in our passage, the opposition to Jesus gets bigger and bigger and bigger, from a a kind of a question by the crowd, to a testing by the Pharisees, to the here, they're just watching, waiting to catch him out, desperate to discredit him. And at the end, that heartbreaking situation that they plot to destroy him. You see, the Pharisees are convinced that Jesus is a lawbreaker, They don't think he's just breaking their rules. They think he's breaking God's law because, well, they can't tell the difference. And so they are waiting to see if Jesus will break the Sabbath law, as far as they're concerned, again. Uh, Before we get too kind of caught up in how caricature uh, bad these Pharisees are, I think we need to be warned if we've been Christians for more than five minutes. Becoming a Pharisee is possibly our biggest temptation that we can easily start to create our own little rules about what it looks like to behave in a good and right way as a Christian, that they become more important than actually submitting to God's law. How you behave in church, how you dress in church, how you pray when you speak up or not. We need to be careful not to let our particular rules become ultimate things that we judge people by. 
oh, well, that, that church, well, they don't have expositional preaching, so not sure they're really Christians at all. Oh, well, that person never comes to the prayer meeting, so they're not really faithful, are they? We often take good things, and when we elevate them to be the basis that we judge other people by, then we're just like the Pharisees. They think Jesus is a lawbreaker because he's breaking their rules, not God's rules. And in this situation, it's similar to that fallen down house, isn't it? They see this man with the withered hand, and in their eyes, okay, well, Jesus might heal him, but he can wait till tomorrow to do that. This isn't a life-threatening situation, is it? But Jesus doesn't want to play by their rules. What does he say? Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save a life or to kill? Well, and they're condemned by their own silence, aren't they? They know that healing this man's withered hand is a good thing. They know that God is the God of all good things. And so they can't answer. Because Jesus already knows what's in their hearts, actually. When he's asking, is it to, to save a life or to kill? He already knows that they're about to plot to have him killed. He knows that this hardness of heart in these people here is eventually going to be what leads to them plotting with Judas and the Romans for him to be captured, beaten, mocked, and crucified. Jesus knows their hearts. The Jewish law and the sacrificial system that they tried to keep, but actually they failed to do that, but it was never ever going to be enough. Because what's in these Pharisees' hearts is the same thing that's in our hearts as well. That we cannot get rid of the sin that is already within us. We need a miracle. We need God himself to act. God himself has acted. Jesus has come to be the one who is going to die as a substitute sacrifice for sin so that we can be made new, so that we can be washed clean, so that we can be completely forgiven and one day perfectly transformed. See, Jesus comes bringing fa- feasting over fasting, blessings over burdens and life over the laws. But, of course, what are we going to do about it? There's a question for all of us and a couple of examples of, of how we might respond. How will you respond to Jesus today? And we've already touched on verse 6, haven't we? The, the Pharisees, when they see Jesus doing all of this, went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. Will you do the same? When Jesus comes and upends your life, which is what he will do, actually, will you look for excuses to ignore him, to reject him? Maybe you can't plot to kill him because he's not here now, but will you plot to have reasons to ignore him forever? Excuses to reject Christianity completely. You know what following Jesus might mean for your lifestyle at the moment, and you don't want to change it. So instead of engaging whether, with whether Jesus really is who he claims to be, you, you might point at the Bible's teaching on sex and relationships, or how you deal with your money and say, oh, I don't want to have anything to do with that. You might look at, uh, at creation and say, oh, I can't believe any of that. Science means I don't have to bother with it all, just because it's an excuse to ignore Jesus. 
who comes as God's king and God's son to rescue. The Pharisees look to destroy Jesus. But but actually, as we look on, I think we see the crowds who seem to love and follow Jesus. I think they've got the wrong end of the stick as well. Listen to verse 7. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea. And a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great cloud heard all that he was doing, they came to him. And he told his disciples to have a boat made ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. People are drawn to Jesus. This is people, not just Jewish and Israelite people, but people from all around the place, Jews and Gentiles, drawn to Jesus together. But they've missed the point. They just think he's just some kind of magical vending machine. Give me this, Jesus. I want this. I will follow you if you give me this thing. And actually, I think, isn't that all too tempting for us to do the same? Oh, I'll be a Christian as long as Jesus gives me X, Y, Z, fill in whatever your desires are at the moment. A bigger house, a better job, a new wife, a new car. Jesus, I'll follow you if you give me this. Jesus is kind. He, he, he heals people. He blesses people in all kinds of ways. But that is not what he has come to do. Jesus is not just like a genie in a bottle. Jesus is God's king and God's son. And actually, I think the only group in our passage who understand that and understand the way that we should respond to that are, maybe ironically, the evil spirits. Verse 11, and whenever the unclean spirits saw him, what do they do? They fell down before him and cried out, you are the son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. That's how we should respond to Jesus. Jesus is God's king, God's son. Fall down and worship him. Because he is the king of the whole universe. He is the one who has come to die so that you can live. And if you follow him, that is sure and secure. Uh, Just very briefly, he tells them not to make any running, I think, for two main reasons. One, because, let's be honest, evil spirits are not good adverts. I think that's a fair thing to say, isn't it? If you've got an evil spirit kind of telling everyone to follow you, it's not the greatest. But also because people will get the wrong idea. Throughout Mark's gospel, people miss, even his own disciples completely miss the point of what he has come to do, why he has come. And it is only after the cross and the resurrection that he stops telling people not to go and spread the news about him because it is only after he has died and risen that his mission is clear for all. That Jesus came to die. He's not come to just overthrow the Romans or or to rule a little part of the Middle East for a few centuries. He has come to die and rise again as a substitute sacrifice for sin so that each and every one of us who puts our trust in him can live forever in his kingdom with him forever. Jesus breaks all of our rules because he is the one with real authority, the only one, the unique one, God the Son who's come to rescue. So as much as it maybe makes me uncomfortable to say it, but we should be like the evil spirits and fall down and worship him. 
So let me pray that we would do that. Father God, thank you that Jesus is the King. That he is your forever King who rules and reigns. And Lord, that every time we see glimpses of him through Mark's gospel, help us to be people who respond in true faith, who fall down and worship at his feet as the God who saves us. Lord, would we never let our own rules get in the way of following Jesus? Would we not respond to him just because of what we want to get out of it? But would we respond in awe and wonder because he is the God who is worthy? Amen.